This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. President Joe Biden got an unpleasant surprise this week when his speech at a historic black church was interrupted by protesters. Is there a larger lesson about what Biden and other white Democrats misunderstand about the black church and black voters in 2024? It was the black church that helped to usher in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the black church that was central to the civil rights movement. And so we know that there is and has been a relationship between the black church and small d democracy. Democrats and the black church coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. With his overall poll number sagging, President Joe Biden traveled to the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina this week to deliver a major campaign speech. That's the location of one of the most infamous massacres of the modern era, where in 2015, Dylan Roof murdered nine worshipers who welcomed him to an evening Bible study. In his remarks, Biden framed himself as guarding democracy against the dangers of a potential second Trump term and fighting white supremacist ideology that led to the murders at Mother Emanuel. But then this happened. Without the truth, there's no light. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. A handful of demonstrators calling for a Gaza ceasefire were quickly escorted out, but not before the moment set off a social media debate about whether they were out of line or if they were in sync with the history of political activism and peace calls from black churches. And as the president faces a daunting election rematch in 2024, the incident raises questions about whether Biden understands how to motivate black voters and whether churches are still the best place to find them. Joining us to talk about all of this is Erin Haynes. She's a veteran political journalist and one of the founders of The 19th, a news nonprofit focused on gender, politics, and policy. Erin Haynes, welcome back to A Word. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Erin, you and I were both following this in real time. Where were you following speech? Were you watching it? Were you paying attention online? Were you listening to it streaming? And what was sort of your immediate reaction in the moment to not just what Joe Biden was saying, but the reaction of the protesters during the talk? I was actually on a flight leaving Atlanta, cradle of the civil rights movement, where I have been in many a black church during campaign season. So I certainly know what that climate looks like and, and can feel like. I was watching the speech on my phone and heard the calls for ceasefire and then heard the chants of four more years that came after that as folks in the audience were trying to shout those protesters down. And I, I thought that really that was the range of the Black church, the Black experience, and the generational divide between Black people in this moment. Dr. Martin Luther King, champion of nonviolence, called for an end to militarism towards the end of his life pretty vocally. And so it's not as if that is out of line with the spirit of the black church. Uh, And at the same time, we know that a lot of the people who were in the audience that day to hear the president as he's kicking off his reelection campaign in earnest in that moment, these are some of his most staunch supporters in that audience. Those voters tend to be older. Those tend to be the kind of more reliable parts of, of the black electorate that are essential to the democratic base. 
all of that was on display in that moment. And I think you also saw, to your point, that playing out on social media. Here's the thing, Aaron. When I looked at the group, so you have your sort of older black voters. They support Democrats. They supported Obama. They supported Biden. A lot of the protesters didn't appear to be black people. And in fact, a lot of the people in the pews appear to be white. So what's interesting also, your perspective, yes, this may represent a sort of microcosm of the Democratic Party, but it also seems to be a microcosm of the kind of Democratic activist party. Do you think those protests represented anything other than that unique moment? Or do you think that that's a general issue that Biden's going to face throughout this campaign? That generational divide is something that that I think this campaign is going to have to reckon with because we do know that a lot of young voters in particular have very strong feelings about the conflict in Israel, and that may factor into what they decide to do at the ballot box come November. So here's what's interesting. We have the older Black voters. They're in the church. You can talk to them. And then a lot of the debate about the appropriateness of this had to do with sort of Gen X and Zoomer black folks, right? Activist Bree Newsom was like, hey, genocide Joe shouldn't be in a church talking about fighting white supremacy when he's gauging white supremacy. And then some of our media colleagues were like, hey, that's inappropriate. That's why you had black people in that church saying uh, now is not the time and place. If you want to do that, you can take that outside. Do you think that the president's challenge of combining or coalescing non-baby boomer black folks is something that he can handle in the next six months. Because those riffs, as far as how Gen X may perceive it and boomers may perceive it, are pretty serious. And especially as the president is trying to make the case that his reelection is really about the threat to democracy uh, that the country is facing, I think the way that will be interpreted by the black electorate, which we know is not a monolith, but certainly generationally, I think is going to be interesting to watch. I think that for a lot of the staunchest part of the Democratic base, older Black folks is who I'm talking about. They hear him talking about the threat to democracy and they understand what that means. A lot of them may have even fought to defend democracy at some point in their lives, lived through a time where they did not necessarily have access to democracy as full participants uh, in our democracy, full access as citizens. But that may hit different to younger folks who are considering that message in this moment and in this context. So there's a lot more going on in Biden's mother manual speech than obviously protests for about 30 minutes. He talked about combating white supremacy, about the economy, health insurance, getting to Hanji Brown Jackson on the Supreme Court and on. You're out there. You travel around the country. You speak in particular to women voters and people of color. When a presidential candidate runs off this kind of laundry list. Is that effective? Does that become an earworm? Do people remember these lists of things or does it just wash over their head if they don't have a direct experience with the policies he's talking about? I think it can be an effective message, uh, especially to a Black community that may be wondering, what has this administration really done for my vote? What did my vote really get me over these last four years? Uh, Because, you know, it's been uh, a long four years and most Americans, including Black Americans, are not necessarily watching our politics that closely on a daily basis. And headed into an election, you do need to remind voters, here's my record. These are the things that we are pointing to as the accomplishments that we have made on your behalf, the agenda that we have tried to fulfill that you asked for when we asked for your vote four years ago. And, you know, repetition, not only does that help 
to convince them whether or not they should support this administration for another four years. You and I know how Black voters work. They don't just go to the polls by themselves. They are taking their church, they're taking their community, they're taking their household, they're taking their sororities and fraternities. So this is also messaging that they are probably going to spread uh, and be in conversation in terms of, of their networks to get them to also turn out in November. We're going to take a short break and we come back more on President Biden and Democratic campaigning in the black church. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about Biden and his pitch to the black church and voters with journalist Aaron Haynes of the 19th. Aaron, Biden is one of a long list of Democratic presidents who've used, and I do think use is the right word, the black church as a backdrop or a platform. And they have relationships with the black church. I remember in the 1990s, Bill Clinton, you had a lot of churches getting burned. Bill Clinton would go and give a speech at a black church. You had Barack Obama giving speeches, not just at Mother Emanuel, but other black churches in Chicago. How often, in your view, are these sort of church trips by presidential candidates or incumbent president Democrats? Is it really an issue of shared values? Is it purely transactional? H- how do you perceive this sort of relationship with the black church as a, as a launching pad or a delivery spot for Democratic candidates? Most Democrats that are running for office are going to make a pit stop at a black church at some point during their campaign. And I think that speaks to the relationship between the Black church and voting, right? It was the Black church that helped to usher in the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Black church that was central to the civil rights movement. And so we know that there is and has been a relationship between the Black church and small d democracy. And so I think that it speaks to that at its core, although I absolutely want to be clear that the Black church has has become political and politicized by these candidates. But I think that there is an expectation now that they will make that a campaign stop. But I also think there is an authenticity test too when those candidates are making that pit stop. Those Black folks in the pews are listening. They're listening for the message and trying to make up their minds. And so faith absolutely plays into how they think about politics, how they think about policy. And to me, I think you can certainly understand not only why it makes sense for a candidate to stop by, that particular institution, but why it makes sense for the people in that institution to want to hear from those candidates in an election year. What's interesting is I'd like you also to contrast the sort of encapsulation of the black church versus the use of black church attendees. Because what I've also noticed is during this Trump era, while you still have Democrats going to black church buildings, right? You've seen Trump himself get black pastors Daryl Scott, gentleman from South Carolina, George Bush had conversations, took pictures with T.D. Jakes. What is it about the fact that Republicans seem to want to grab black pastors to sort of vouch for them, but they don't enter black church buildings, right, which Democrats seem more comfortable doing? Is that a strategic thing? Why do you think that is? I I think for any candidate, certainly the endorsement, the support of a pastor, particularly of some of these larger Black churches is something that a candidate is going to seek because of the outsized role that a pastor can play in a community in terms of influence, certainly separation of church and state notwithstanding, the influence of a pastor on a congregation is huge. And so to have somebody like a Daryl Scott or somebody like a T.D. Jakes standing with a President Trump, 
that is going to send a message to some part of the electorate, certainly not a majority of Black voters, but that does not necessarily mean that's going to translate into votes for that person. And I do think that is probably part of what Republican candidates do not understand about how the dynamics of the Black church work. So while Biden was in South Carolina this week, Vice President Kamala Harris was in Atlanta to hold meetings on protecting voting rights. Here's a clip from some of her remarks there. When we look at the state of Georgia, in many ways it is ground zero on this issue, both in terms of Georgia's history of fighting for the right of people to express their dreams and goals for their country through the exercise of their right to vote. Uh, Georgia, of course, the home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the home of John Lewis, of Andy Young, and, of course, many of the leaders who are at this table. So, look, to great measure, Joe Biden owes his presidency and the Democrats are control of Senate to voting rights advocates in Georgia. What does it say about the fact that Vice President Harris was there meeting with these folks and not Biden himself? And you have a, a great deal of insight as to sort of Harris's role in this campaign. What was significant about her being in those meetings, her having those conversations instead of him, at least at this point? Vice President Harris is somebody who remains popular among Black folks in this country. If you saw some of the folks who were in attendance at that meeting, a lot of Black women organizers. And for her, given her historic role coming down there, a Black woman who is the the second most powerful person in the country, trying to shore them up months ahead of this election instead of weeks ahead of this election trying to make them feel valued in a moment where so many Black women are feeling disrespected, feeling devalued, right? I think that perhaps the message that they were trying to send, they're trying to set a tone using her probably as the most high-profile surrogate that you're going to see this cycle and recognizing kind of the stakes given that how pivotal Georgia was in 2020 for this administration. Atlanta was one of the first stops as this campaign gets underway. And with her being somebody who was important to a lot of the Black community, signals the tone that they are trying to set headed into this election. Sticking to Georgia, so the two most prominent Democratic politicians in that state, you have former gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, and you have Senator Raphael Warnock, who is still remains pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is historic church. Martin Luther King used to preach there. What is the the way in which he threads the needle? It was a very interesting decision when Raphael Warnock said, yeah, I'm a run for the Senate, but I'm still going to remain pastor of this church. Is he able to thread that needle effectively? Can he call upon pastors all throughout black churches in Georgia and say, I'm not just calling you as sort of Ebenezer's pastor, I'm also calling you as a senator. Is that something difficult for him to do? Have you ever heard sort of word of people being like, hey, we got to make sure that we don't come under a federal investigation? Or is it something that's just organic given the sort of politicized history of the Black church in America? We're seeing how he is navigating those dual roles because he is still in the pulpit many Sundays, (laughs) preaching at Ebenezer, even as he is serving as a sitting senator, I think that when he is talking to Black pastors in the state, I mean, these are his colleagues. These are people that already knew him before he was a senator. And frankly, when he was pastor of Ebenezer, the reality is that he was also political. I mean, Ebenezer is a church that is steeped in social justice. Like you said, this was the church home, spiritual home of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And that is something that the church 
that the congregation takes very seriously. This was a church that registered voters. This was a church that was absolutely and is absolutely a campaign stop for Democratic candidates. Now, does that continue in the first presidential election since Senator Warnock has joined Congress? I think it'll be interesting to see that. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about Biden, the black church and black voters with journalist Aaron Haynes. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to a word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with veteran political journalist Aaron Haynes about President Biden's challenges with black voters. So, Aaron, it has already been run into the ground that Joe Biden is having challenges with with African-American voters. The question that I have is the church still the best place to go? When I talk to people who are under 30, heck, when I talk to people who are under 40, a lot of them, they may not be regular church attendees anymore. And some of them express frustration. Okay, they think all black people are either at church or at a beauty salon or at a barbershop. Do you think the church is still a powerful place to go if you're trying to talk to somebody under 55 years old who's not married? I think the church is still a powerful place to go. It is not the powerful place to go in the way that it was in our parents' or grandparents' generation. There does have to be a strategy that is meeting the Black electorate everywhere that they are. Black radio is not what it was in terms of being that tool that was really going to get Black voters galvanized robocalls to who has a landline, right? So who, <laughs> who's going to get that robocall right before the election? Back when I was... Growing up, it was you got a phone call from Congressman John Lewis telling you to remember what the sacrifice was and to make sure that uh, you got out there and cast your ballot for the folks that had made that sacrifice. John Lewis is no longer with us. A A lot of the traditional parts of that apparatus, including the Black church, just don't exist to that extent anymore, if they exist at all. What that means is that Democrats are going to have to meet Black voters wherever they are and not just assume that the strategies that have worked in cycles past are the only strategies that are going to get them across the finish line in November. So in your view, where are those other places for black voters? Because I, here's the thing, if I'm running for mayor, if I'm running in a local district, fine. I I know to go to that black church because quite frankly, those people could be in my ward. They're direct voters for me in the city, et cetera, et cetera. But I've always thought to myself that a more innovative politician, you want to find 25 to 55 year old black men, go to an outdoor basketball court. That's where you see guys who work everywhere from UPS to the law firm playing two hours of ball before they go home. There are different places to go to talk to black people. Now, in your experience, what are some of those places or are politicians still just scrambling? What's interesting, I was in conversation with a group of organizers who were all alums of Stacey Abrams' campaign and alums of the apparatus that she built over a decade in Georgia. And really, I had a chance to talk to them about just some of those kind of non-traditional venues that you were speaking about where they went, trying to shore folks up, not only for Abrams, but for Senator Warnock when he was running and also Senator Ossoff. We're talking about motorcycle bike clubs. If they're in the parking lot, let's go find them and let's talk to them. Hookah bars. People are smoking hookah. You got their attention. Let's talk to them about whether they're registered to vote and not even who they might vote for, but are you registered? Do you have a plan to participate in this election, right? So just really rethinking where to go (laughs) and attempting to persuade folks, meeting them again, wherever they are, 
and not expecting them to show up in these kind of traditional venues where they may or may not still be. And then when they're not there, just assuming that they are not to be captured. And also there's not anything wrong with traditional door knocking, particularly in some of these forgotten pockets of the country or of a state where people just aren't used to organizers showing up and even asking for their support, right? Because people just assume, oh, you're in a red state, either you're not participating, you don't care as much, you're in a rural area, and I'm focused on Black folks in, in, in the cities. No, people are not often enough being asked in the places where they are. We know that Black people live in rural America. We know that even if they're gerrymandered to death, wherever they live in a presidential election year, they can turn out on record numbers if they are motivated to do that. If they can be shown that the Democratic Party thinks that they're worth the investment, that only helps to to galvanize them in in another election year that we know is going to be really close. Going forward, and this may seem simplistic, it also may be something that opens people up to criticism. Barack Obama had his church in Chicago. You've had Jesse Jackson have his church in, in South Carolina. Do you think, and this hits me in a personal way, anyone who knows me follows the show knows that uh, my friend Clementa Pinckney, who was the pastor of Mother Emanuel, was assassinated by Dylan Roof. Do you think that Mother Emanuel is now going to be the standard drop-off spot for Democrats going forward? Do you think that we're going to see this place become, maybe not at the level of Ebenezer because it doesn't have a 60, 70-year history to a Nobel Peace Prize winner. But do you think that Mother Emanuel becomes that church now for Democrats going forward? Or do you think that we'll continue to see a sort of grab bag of different locations they may go when they want to speak to that particular Black constituency? Mother Emanuel certainly is a very sacred space for Black America in particularly, a very sacred space. But what you also have is South Carolina now moved up on the primary calendar. And so if South Carolina is now more prominent in the election cycle, I do think that could potentially elevate Mother Emanuel as a high-profile candidate stop where people go with a specific message that could help them break through in an election and also help those voters really discern whether or not this is somebody who could potentially be the next president. Aaron Haynes is a veteran political journalist and one of the founders of The 19th, a news nonprofit focused on gender, politics, and policy. Aaron Haynes, thanks for joining us on A Word as we discuss the word. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. That's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for a word. Thank you.